Welcome to part two of Confabulation Presents The Shorter Story. I'm Matt Goldberg, the host and producer of Confabulation, Montreal's premier all-true storytelling series. If you haven't heard last week's episode, that's fine. Even though these halves go together, they can be listened to independently of one another. We've got another, hmm, what number should I give you guys? We had 34 storytellers, 36 stories overall, something like 18 stories from 17 storytellers for this second half. It was a bit of a mess, but amazing. Here we go with uh, our first storyteller for the second half is Paula Flalo, my co-producer and uh, co-creator of No More Radio. Here he is, Paula Flalo. One of the great things about being an uncle is manipulating my nephew and my, my two nephews and my niece. Uh, yes, trust me, it's the best. Uh, my nephew, Zach, was just about to turn five. We were at my younger sister Jessica's house for her 30... Uh, second birthday? Yeah, that's right. 32nd birthday. My brother Mark is 36. My older sister Marnie is 40. Uh, and they were having a conversation at my younger sister's birthday about the difference between May contains nuts and contains nuts. <laughs> For 45 minutes, they were having this conversation. It was absurd to a point where I couldn't take it anymore. And I looked at my nephew, Zach, and I said, Zach, what's the difference between May contains and contains? And he looks at me and he says, contains means it has, and May contains means it might be there or it might not. <laughs> Done! Okay? soon-to-be-five-year-old kid figured this out in less than 30 seconds. So I look at him like, Zach, can you do me a huge favor? I want you to go up to Dado, my brother Mark, and Auntie Marnie, and I want you to say exactly that. He proceeds to take the pencil off of the table. He walks up to his father and my brother and holds the pencil as a microphone in front of him, and then he goes, Dado, Auntie Marnie, I want to let you know that the difference between may contains and contains is simple. May contains means it might have it or might not, and contains means it does. My nephew, without missing a beat, stretches out his arm and drops the pencil. <laughs> and then proceeds to walk into the kitchen, and it's just one of those doors, just flaps. <laughs> And all the eyes, mine, my brother, and my older sisters are following my nephew as he does this. And then I look back in shock. Not only did my little nephew outsmart my older brother and my older sister, but he did a mic drop. <laughs> so happy. Thank you so much. Welcome to the second half of Confabulation. I'm your host for this second half, Paula Flalo. We have a bunch more stories for you on the shortest story, five. This is the sound you're gonna hear at the two minute mark. So that's when you're gonna, you know, gently start ending your story at that point. So, your storytellers, number 19, Nisha Coleman. Insomnia, you know it. You're groggy and stupid all day long. And then by the time your head hits the pillow, your brain's like, so about that thing you're working on, we've got a few suggestions. And what do you think about that thing that person said to you the other day? It's really annoying the first day. It's super annoying the second day. But after a week, it's starting to get quite exhausting. And recently, I've been experiencing these symptoms for over a month, which meant that during the day, 
I was in sort of a sedated sort of a state, and then at night my brain would come awake again. But it was too exhausted to come up with any form of decent thoughts, and so it would just bombard me with psychedelic shapes and colors for hours on end. <laughs> now, many months prior, I had signed up to take part in a study at McGill. It was this brain imaging neuroscience study that required taking amphetamines. And it just so happened that the first day of the study coincided perfectly with the insomnia. And so, after not having slept for uh, over a month, I was now going to be taking amphetamines used by the U.S. military as a go pill during uh, fatigue-inducing uh, mission missile, missile missions. I think maybe not such a good idea. And so I went to the study and I took the amphetamines. 45 minutes later, brain on fire. My thoughts are spewing uncontrollably. So I grab my notebook and my pen, I'm just writing page after page, and really all I have to do is give blood and fill out some questionnaires. So I just keep writing and writing, hours filling up pages, perfect penmanship lined across the page. After a couple of hours, the amphetamines start to wear off. I get shoved in a cab and taken home. My brain, which had pretty much just performed a marathon without any form of preparation whatsoever, was like, I don't know what that was. But I'm out. <laughs> Leaving me and sleep to reacquaint with one another once again. Thank you. Number 20, Jamie Metivier. When I was 18, a girl told me she loved me. This is the account of my inner monologue in the seconds that followed. <laughs> my emotional brain. I love her. My rational brain. Go home and masturbate see if you still feel that way. <laughs> but I feel warm inside when I'm around her. That's because most of what you do when you're together is wear sweaters, snuggle, and sip warm water. <laughs> uh, you, you suck. You're a coward who hides behind facts. You have no balls. Just take a risk. Actually, not taking risks is the definition of rational. That's why I exist. <laughs> you have no balls whatsoever. Uh, in fact, I can say that we do have balls and stop degrading me because we are the same person. Uh-huh! Sounds like you feel angry, Mr. Rational. No, I'm not angry about this at all! Ha! You're angry because you care! And then, like a slip of the tongue, I looked at her and I said, I love you too. <laughs> and five years later, I still mean it. Number 21, Jennifer Ansel Clark. So I'm five years old and my mother and I are on vacation in Northern Ontario in the middle of nowhere with another family. They have two little boys, one is my age, five, and the other one is six. And we've been swimming in the lake all day and next to the lake there's this old abandoned country house. It's got one of those big porches that goes around the front. The front door is missing. 
Now, being little kids, of course, we decide that this is a haunted house. <laughs> and we're talking about, you know, oh, there must be a ghost, and look how old it is, and this is so scary. And I said to one of the boys, you know, you want to go inside? I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to go inside. And the other boy's like, oh, no, I'm not going inside. And me, being the city girl, they're like, I'm going to go inside. So I walk up to the front door, and I walk past that big empty door frame, and as I'm turning around to tell them, see, there's nothing here, I go into the second door frame, which is a solid sheet of cobweb. <laughs> and as I back into it, it falls over me <laughs> completely. And of course, I shut my eyes real tight and I shut my mouth and bring up my fists because I'm scared to death. And I start to scream. But knowing that the door frame is there, I start to run. All the two boys outside see is this tattered gray mass heading straight for them, screaming. And they start screaming, it's a ghost, oh my god, it's a ghost. Me, I think there's a ghost coming after me. screaming even louder, which freaks them out, and you start hearing, Mom, Mom, it's a ghost, it ain't Jennifer, oh my God, ah! And I'm still running and screaming. Of course, you know, the parents show up, I get washed off, and everything's fine. But to this day, a cobweb touches me, I scream. <laughs> Number 22, Brad King. If you've ever seen the movie A Christmas Story, you'll remember that there's a scene where Ralphie's friend Flick, after being triple dog dared, gets his tongue stuck to a frozen flagpole. At seven years old, I had never seen A Christmas Story. However, I had heard of the phenomena of tongues freezing to flagpoles. Heard, but not seen. Being scientifically minded for a seven-year-old, I decided I had to test this myself. So one cold winter afternoon, I got on my snow jacket, I put on my toque, and I went outside. Uh, near where I live, there are no flagpoles to test this with. But I live next door to a school. So there's a metal chain link fence, and at the end, a five-foot post made of metal. Add a quick flagpole for my testing purposes. So, sticking my tongue against it, not the tip of my tongue, no, no, the flat of my tongue, to give my test the best chance possible, I immediately am stuck to the metal pole. You'd think I would be happy that uh, scientifically I had a positive result, but no. I panicked because no one knew I was out there. So I could have been stuck against this thing for several hours. In my panic, I pushed myself off the metal pole, leaving a layer of skin behind. With my mouth filling with blood, I rush inside and try to tell my predicament to my dad. The words don't really come out, but a look at my mouth sort of gives him the gist of what happened. He gets me a face cloth, wets it, fills it with ice, puts it on my tongue and says, leave it there, it'll stop the bleeding, and it'll numb the pain. 
After leaving it there for a few minutes, he's right. Pain goes away, the bleeding stops, and I go to take it off. <laughs> and for the second time that day, my tongue is frozen to something else. I go to my mom, and she runs my tongue under warm water. It melts off. She puts a paper towel over it. Everything is fine. I learned three important things from this lesson. One, be more trusting of people when they tell you things. <laughs> Two, if you have a problem, go to mom and not dad. <laughs> Three, don't put your tongue on things. <laughs> Number 23, Carol Tenbrick. Uh, do you people know the song, The Cold Winds of Montreal? Well, I hope if you've been here for a while, you also know about the warm heart in Montreal. In fact, it's such heartedness that sometimes, I swear, things can happen from a deeper place than normal, everyday reality. Example. Last fall, I'm filing out of that huge lecture hall um, uh, in the Hall Building Concordia. Place is overpacked, over a thousand people, so we're inching very slow. And this woman right next to me, young woman, looks at me and says, Were you in a bike accident in the spring? And I go, Yeah. And I'm wondering, How could she know? And then she says, I'm the person who found you unconscious after you went down. I'm just stunned. I don't know what to say. So I, I gather myself. I give her a big hug. And then she explains the details. Uh, it was midnight, spring night. They're walking on a sidewalk, she and her boyfriend. Out of the corner of her eye, she sees me go down, bam, unconscious, <coughs> on the, uh, having hit a pothole. So her boyfriend calls the ambulance. They gather around, lay me flat. I'm still unconscious, bleeding from my mouth, lots of facial lesions. Other Montreal angels gather around, each one trying to help, give advice. She said, I'm so glad to see you again. After the ambulance came, I, I'm just so glad to know you're all right. So I'm amazed as well because I didn't know any of this. I didn't know about the pothole. I didn't know anybody helped me. But the most amazing thing is this. How does this happen in a city of two million plus people? She and I come together a second time our paths cross in such a significant way. In that auditorium of over a thousand people, we were close enough to each other that she could see my face and recognize me. How, how do you explain that? So for me, it has to do with the heart and the soul. <laughs> that's in this city, and that's why I love it so much.
Number 24. That's 24, yeah, we're 24. Lauren Budman. So when I was 16, I became a man. Oh wait, get your mind out of the gutter. That's not the story for tonight. But <laughs> what I did was I decided to join the masses of the working stiffs and get my first full-time summer job. Not just any summer job, but a teenager's wet dream of a job, working at Toys R Us. <laughs> so I know what you're thinking. I thought it back then too. Working at Toys R Us is not really work. You're gonna be playing, fooling around 24 seven. You know, you've got toys and games and action figures and guns and, and all, the, all the fun stuff in the world. But unfortunately, this is really a kid's toy store, not an adult toy store where I'm sure that happens all the time, right? <laughs> Anyways, so I digress. So uh, Toys R Us was really, it was a job. Basically there were, you know, we weren't completely uh, ignorant of the fact that there was a lot of fun going on. We, we had silly string warfare. We had uh, after hours uh, relay races with uh, big wheels versus tricycles versus strollers or what have you. But, you know, basically it was a job. One day, though, I had a very embarrassing moment that left uh, me completely red-faced and a client, you know, doubled over in laughter. So I was working in the back and he, a client comes in and says, I'm here to pick up the two bikes I ordered. Well, Toys R Us does sell bikes. And it happens that the brand name of the bikes they sold was called Kent, K-E-N-T, pretty simple to pronounce, Kent. You know, one Kent, two Kents. He's here for it to pick up his two bikes. So uh, I checked the uh, conveyor belt. No, it hasn't come in from the warehouse yet. And he waits patiently, five minutes past, 10 minutes past, and he's getting impatient. So I click on the intercom and I scream to my two buddies who are working upstairs in the warehouse. I say, all right guys, stop screwing around, hurry up and finish up with those two Cunts. Not cants, but cunts. I turn beat red, this guy starts laughing, but not until my next line did he really roll over when he said, I'm so sorry, sir, it was just a slip of the tongue. <laughs> Number 25, Megs Fitzgerald. So in 2012, I was living in Chicago and I was riding this huge, wonderful wave, this high that I had been on for about nine months. And I uh, had just sort of entered this special zone where whenever I needed something, it just somehow magically manifested in my life. So if I um, set out some sort of objective for myself or really defined desire, uh, somehow the universe would configure my acquaintances and my long-lost old friends and strangers to somehow provide that need for me. And as you can imagine, this felt incredible. Uh, but as I was riding this high, I also had this one apprehension about this new philosophy. And that was that if these strangers, these other people, were through their actions uh, providing my needs for me, then I must also be providing their needs for them through my actions. And this made me uncomfortable, just to think that I wasn't the sole person in charge of, of what I was doing and, and my, my own thoughts, that I was somehow being controlled by some sort of universal force. So in Chicago, I worked at this incredible artist studio. And uh, I loved my mornings there. I would walk to work every morning. And I moved there in the fall. And I loved the fall colors. And I got to walk through all of these amazing neighborhoods and like soak in these architecture details. And I just really loved it. And my actual studio was located uh, sort of in this industrial area. And I was, I turned the corner of this particular, oh, I should say that uh, my studio itself actually faced this fairly large road. 
and the road wasn't a highway, but it was, it was a fast road, and people would drive like 80 to 100 kilometers an hour on this thing. So one morning, a particularly beautiful morning, I was walking to work, and I turned the corner into this industrial area, and about half a block away from my studio, I saw this really large branch had fallen into the, into the road. And it was large enough with all of its twigs and sticks that it actually consumed almost an entire lane. So without thinking about it, I just walked up to the stick and to the branch and I pulled it out of the lane and I just put it nearby in this gravel parking lot and I kept on walking. And I got to the studio door and I looked back at where the branch had been and I saw that there was a cyclist who was biking in the shoulder and then right behind her was a car, like right, right behind her and then behind that car were many more cars speeding forward. And I just had this moment where everything made sense and it was not at all uncomfortable for me to physically move that branch, but I realized that I didn't move that branch. It was actually the cyclist and the driver of that day who decided that they were gonna to get to work safely. Thank you. Number 26, Trevor Cherlin. So I'm not from Montreal originally, I'm from Alberta, which means, yeah, which means by default uh, I'm lacking in a few key areas of French. Um, but one strategy I have to overcome this is uh, if there's a sentence I want to say, and I know most of the French words in that sentence, I'll say the French words I know, and then I'll just say the English words that I don't know, but add sort of a French Quebecois accent to it. Um, and this works pretty well most of the time, but um, last year I had started a new job, and uh, it was an office job, nine to five type of job. And we had this new big client come in. And so we had this all day business meeting with them, and in the morning we had our usual kickoff presentation. And noon comes and we order in lunch, and everybody's given a different sandwich, a different salad. So I'm eating this sandwich, and across the table is my boss, David. And he says, c'est bien? Is, is the sandwich good? And I say, oui, oui, c'est parfait, c'est parfait. And I think to myself, like, I'm new here, I should try to fit in for once. Uh, and I should be polite, and so I want to say to David, um, do you want a bite, David? <laughs> so you know where this is going. So I don't know the word for bite in French. So I revert back to my English-French combination strategy. And in this boardroom of all these executives, I say, tu veux un bit, And there's this awkward pause in the room, and I can feel all these francophone eyes looking at me, kind of like right now. Um, and David leans in and says, excusez-moi? And so I, I, I point downwards. the sandwich and I say tu veux un bit and he politely says uh, no 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 merci, merci. Um, so after lunch is over David sort of like takes me aside and he says do you know what you just said in in the boardroom just now in front of the new client and I said yeah I offered you a, a bite and you didn't want any what's the deal and he says Trevor bit in French doesn't mean bite it means dick <laughs> You just said, do you want a dick, David, in front of the new client? So there's a few flaws in this strategy, I have. So it needs a little bit of tweaking. 
just a little bit. <laughs> Number 27, Chris O'Bray. Right. Wow. So, a number of years ago, I was doing some volunteer work in the Dominican Republic. I spent six weeks there in the center of the, uh, the island, up in the mountains, way up high in the mountains. And uh, so on one fine day, after half a day of hard work, it was siesta time, which oh, I love it. I can never sleep though, it's way too damn hot. So this day I decided to go wandering as one is want to do in a new country. I picked a random path and just went for it. Walked for about 15 minutes, it was gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful valley on the left, a sheer cliff, beautiful cliff. Uh, about a four foot path, give or take, and a sheer rock wall on the right side. Walked about 15 minutes and then something happened. Now, you know that person in the elevator who's jamming that door close button like as if it'll sense the urgency? <laughs> Well, that was happening in my stomach, and it was the door open button, and I sensed the urgency, big time. It was, uh, I had about 15 seconds to act. I'm like, okay, I can't go back. This is not gonna, oh my God, what do I do? There's nothing around. There's this tree, okay, this seems pretty sturdy, okay. Assume barrel of monkey position, do-si-do, -si -do. drop trow, etc. Now, the look on my face, what I felt, and I hope I never feel it again, it was this bizarre mixture of relief, sheer terror, and amusement, massive amusement. And you are now the second group of people who've ever heard that story, so thank you. Number 28, Inganath. Recently, I decided that I should try to sell bikini wax <laughs> an hour before my date arrives. Even though I had never done any waxing before, I was like, this is a great idea and nothing can possibly go wrong. And uh, so I asked my roommate if I can borrow her, her wax and she's like, oh, what do you want to do? And I, was, uh, I lie. I say, oh, I, I want to wax my armpits. And I lie because I know she's going to tell me it's a bad idea. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I heat uh, uh, the wax and right away, because there's some wax outside the container, my fingers get super sticky. And so uh, there's wax already all over the doorknob, the sheets, my laptop for some reason. Uh, and and uh, I also already ripped some patches of body hair just randomly off my body when like trying to, to to uh, touch myself, and then um, I try to apply uh, the wax, but uh, due to a lack uh, of fine motor skills, it, it just—it's just everywhere. And then, uh, and then I'm like, okay, great. Uh, uh, I have these um, paper things to tear it off, but it doesn't really work. And then the few the few times it works, it starts bleeding immediately. So, so I look at my watch. I'm like, okay, 30 minutes until my date comes in. I look down uh, on my like lower body, and I'm like, okay, uh, battlefield, <laughs> absolute catastrophe. And I was like, okay, Inga, okay, I have to admit my defeat. I have to. Uh, uh, this project failed. Uh, th this mission 
uh, has to be aborted. And, and, and then the panic started to creep up because I was like, how am I gonna get the sticky wax off? You're supposed to get it off with the paper, but I wasn't able to do that. So I throw over my house coat uh, and I ask my roommate and she's like, oh yeah, there's an oil for that, but I threw it out. And I just try to not cry <laughs> while also realizing that now my house coat is permanently attached to my lower, lower body half. Uh, so I like start uh, to scrub it off with soap, it wouldn't work. And then in a moment of, of panic and clarity, uh, I realize, okay, if it was an oil, any oil should work. So I just grab a bottle of olive oil, run into the shower, rip off the coat, uh, and start scrubbing my entire body with olive oil. And it worked. <laughs> Tears of relief just ran down my face and I, I felt a deep gratitude to olive oil. <laughs> At the end, it all worked out. I got ready uh, before before uh, my my date uh, arrived at my place. And if I learned one thing, it's if you lie to someone because you don't want to tell them something, you think they will tell you it's a bad idea. It's probably a bad idea. <laughs> Hi there, this is Paulo Flalo. I just want to let you know that we are uh, we have removed one of the stories from the podcast that was told originally at the Shore Story 5 back in February 2015. And it's only because the storyteller number 29 has asked us to remove their story and not have it appear on the podcast. So without further ado, we skip 29 and go to story number 30. Number 30, Alana Hefez. be short. Two minutes, setting, police intervention, moment of truth. <laughs> in 2007, I got a contract working for the United States National Park Service and the chance to live along with four other Canadian interns at Fort Wadsworth National Park on Staten Island. And as soon as we arrived, my eager co-interns and I went out to explore our new neighborhood and especially, you know, the, the three-story high 17th century stone fortress uh, that was right nearby. So we walked off the road and took a look around this fortress that was built, you know, to defend New York Harbor from the British and later the Canadian invaders. And uh, then we went and sat down on the banks of the Hudson River uh, to watch the sunset. And it's a beautiful scene in the distance over the water. The Brooklyn lights are twinkling. And suspended above the entire scene is the Verrazano Bridge with its massive stone pillars just plunging down into the river beside us. So naturally, someone takes out a camera. And we take a couple pictures of our new neighborhood. And then suddenly, this police car comes careening off the road, drives across the grass, stops next to us. Two cops jump out, and they're like, what are you guys doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You're certainly not allowed to take photos here. You're not even supposed to look at this. <laughs> Obviously, I'm immediately seized with the desire to start craning my neck around in every direction to figure out what the hell we're not supposed to be seeing. <laughs> You know what I'm going, is there like a submarine surfacing in the Hudson River? Or is there some sort of like 
secret covert military ops happening in Fort Wadsworth behind us? Or have we stumbled upon a toxic waste dump off the shores of Brooklyn? And it takes all of my willpower to just keep my eyes kind of vaguely on the ground in front of us as the police line us up and march us back out to the road. And one of them takes IDs from everybody and gets in the car to start running background checks. And the other one stays out to watch over us. And we're sitting there being like, Please, sir, we're Canadian. We have no idea what's happening. And that's when the police takes pity on us and explains that we have just narrowly avoided being arrested for looking at the Verrazano Bridge from a suspiciously terrorist angle. <laughs> Number 31, Brit Dash. Um, so when I was in the first grade, I took up sticker collecting. And uh, this was a bit of an odd hobby for me because I was sort of a lone wolf otherwise. And I didn't have hobbies that were social, like sticker collecting, right? Because you would need to trade with people if you wanted to be profitable. And not only that, you would need to go to like sticker parties and it was sort of a whole thing. But like me, I just wanted to build my collection as much as possible. I didn't, wasn't interested in making friends at all. No friendship, please. So that was kind of, but I was seeing a lot of trades going on and at some point I knew that I was just like doing myself a disservice by not trading in the classroom in the first grade. So we're in these sort of like desks stuck together in groups and I decided to seek a trading partner but only in like a strictly business kind of way. <laughs> so I approached a girl, Anna Stein. She was a goody two shoes kind of girl but she had an impressive collection. <laughs> and I said, Anna, I see you have some nice stickers. I do in my book as well. Perhaps we could trade. But I didn't want to become friends. I didn't want to be invited anywhere. Like, no. I just wanted to, you know. And she was pretty good with it. So her and I became trading partners after a while. And I found this satisfactory uh, for my needs because I got $2 allowance and I was just trying to spend as little as possible towards my hobby to save for my other hobbies, chocolate and whatnot. So at some point, I uh, decided to invest a little more and I uh, got an array of fruit stickers. So the one in the middle was a shiny, very shiny, which was good, uh, <laughs> basket of fruit, my favorite, large sticker, very good. And then there was all kinds of other fruits uh, that I would put around uh, the fruit uh, basket. And this was a very good sticker, and Anna admired the sticker, reasonably so. And she said to me, I would like to trade that sticker. And I was like, um, I don't think so, because it's very good. And she offered me two stickers, but two ugly stickers, no. So I said, Anna, no. And then she kept pushing, and I was like, Anna, I'm not negotiating with you anymore. Like, we are done. Our trading relationship is over. I'm not trading with you anymore. You've, your offer is obscene. And I, I, I left school that day saying, I'm going to find someone new. People aren't worth it. And then I got to school the next day, opened my sticker book as usual, and there's a big gaping hole where my sticker previously was. 
And there's, you know, extra sticky stuff because obviously something was unstuck. And I knew that I had been robbed and I decided I was going to seek justice, uh, the teacher. So I came up to the teacher and I was like, Madame Maud, uh, this person stole, she's a thief. And Madame Maud was like, Brit, you know, uh, Anna's a really nice girl. I don't think she would steal. You should check your book again. And I was like, no, we had a negotiation that went south. Obviously, I have reason to believe that she is the thief and I'm the victim and you do something. And so after school, like our, we're sitting at our desks and I'm getting, waiting for my justice. And Madame Maud is standing there and like Anna is like, I didn't steal her sticker book. And I was like, ma'am, would you check her book? You will find a shiny basket that belongs to me. And so uh, Madame Mode like is indulging me. She opens the book, what's there? Hmm? Shiny basket, mine. And um, I was like, Anna, you have to give that back to me. And Madame Mode was like, Anna, say sorry and give Brit her sticker back. And then Anna, who's obviously never been in trouble in her life, is like freaking out and she's crying her eyes out. Eh, okay, one sec. Uh, she's just like, she's like, She's like slowly peeling it off and I'm like, for some reason, feeling bad for her and I don't want to be engaged in this shit so I'm crying too. And then we're both crying and Madame Maud is standing there just like hating her life, bro. And finally, like Anna, like, and I'm like, ah. I'm like, just do it, just get it over And she peels the sticker off, she puts it back and I get back my like, see the damage and what's happened is, First of all, she stuck it in the wrong place. So there's stickiness where it needed to be because she got stuck. Then obviously, like it's not so sticky anymore because it's been stuck three times and it's peeling up at the end because it's no longer good. And then she's misarranged it. My whole fruit arrangement is askew. And I just say, are people really worth it? Number 32, David Tabakow. When I was 19, my roommate Chester and I became interested in the same woman, Kate. Well, too bad for me because she preferred him. And what that led to was that we were all three together in our crummy two-room apartment where they were separated from me by about maybe five meters and a bead curtain. <laughs> it was not a happy experience, at least not for me. Now, as it happened, Kate liked classical music. And so every night as they went to bed, she would put on a stack of classical records. I did not like classical music. It just seemed weird to me, unmelodic, I didn't get it. But I had a choice. I could either listen to the music or I could listen to the other sounds <laughs> from that room, which was not really much of a choice. So every night I would sort of desperately, not very <coughs> successfully, try to listen to the music. And this sort of pathetic charade went on for a while. And then one night suddenly with no warning, something went click in my brain. And it was just as though the gates of heaven had opened and, and God and all the angels had 
poured their golden radiance down on me. Like this music was not just beautiful, it was beautiful beyond anything I had ever imagined could exist in this imperfect world. I, I was completely transported and I just lay there in a kind of trance. And if you're interested in these kinds of things, it turned out that the piece of music that created so much rapture in me was actually the Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony. You know, people say that the, the best love affairs are those that just go on and on. Well, all that happened 50 years ago. And, you know, Kate and Chester disappeared from my life decades ago. But my love for classical music just gets stronger and stronger all the time. You know, it's really strange, isn't it? Because we just really don't know where our, our greatest gifts are going to come from, sometimes from the most unlikely circumstances. Thank you. Number 33, Dominique Blaine. Ago. Um, it was a beautiful Sunday morning. I woke up. Uh, my boyfriend went out to the bakery to get something to eat for breakfast, and I went to the brownie pan to have my morning brownie because I'm an adult and I can eat whatever I want for breakfast. Uh, and so I was eating my morning brownie and feeling pretty good about life. And I like to multitask, I like to always be doing as many things at once to feel good about myself, even if I am eating a brownie for breakfast. And uh, it occurred to me, I'll go take my shower now. And uh, you know, by the time Chris gets back, then he can have the shower to himself, whatever. And so I'm eating my, sh my, my brownie, and I set up the shower, and I go in the shower with my brownie. Guys, <laughs> this is a thing I do that I, it has become apparent to me that other people don't eat in the shower. <laughs> I was genuinely surprised to find this out. I routinely eat in the shower. I'm not like not a three course meal, but like a brownie or a sandwich, whatever. <laughs> Is this a really surprise? Anyway, <laughs> so I go in the shower with my brownie and I'm doing my thing and I'm just kind of really enjoying life because it's hot water and a brownie. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm on my last bite and uh, I kind of get stuck. And in my head, I'm like, Oh, imagine the old bit, right? She died choking in a brownie in the shower. <laughs> and I think, oh, that's funny, and I go to laugh it, but and I, I inhale and I can't, because I'm actually choking. <laughs> it's not just something going on in my head, I can't breathe. And like, the funny disappears, and now panic is setting in, because I can't breathe. And every time I'm like, this is not happening, I'll just inhale, I cannot breathe and and my vision starts to pinpoint and now I'm starting to panic and I'm like kind of holding on to the shower now I'm also afraid that I'm gonna slip and fall and crack my head and I still can't breathe and I finally okay just I've learned the Heimlich maneuver but whatever instead of doing that I start just hitting my chest as much as I can and I'm like slapping myself and hitting myself and finally, I don't know, it comes up and I sold it back out and I can breathe. Oh, I can breathe and I turn off the shower and I put on my, my, my house coat and I just sit at the dining room table and I'm like, I almost just died. 
I can't, and I'm like, I'm doubting myself. Did I just, cause that's ridiculous. Like I can't, people don't die like that. And I'm like kind of doubting myself, but I'm panicked and Chris comes in and I'm like, he's not even in the door. And I'm like, Chris, I almost just died. And he comes over and he's like, what happened? And I go, I was eating the brownie in the shower and I choked and he's a good person. So he's like. <laughs> and he's just like, okay. He just kind of takes me in his arms and I'm panicking and then he just, just says, I mean, I think this should go without saying, but maybe you should make it a rule to not eat in the shower. That's my story. <laughs> Storyteller number 34, Jeff Gandell. I used to uh, teach English as a second language and I had, a, I had my own language school company. And I came up with the name one night when I was really high and I thought it was amazing, uh, but I made the mistake, it was in French and I made the mistake of not asking a francophone before I like paid a lot of money for advertisements. Uh, it was called Engage Langage. Uh, which sounds nice, but it, in actually in French, it's kind of doesn't mean anything, and is confusing, and is a little stupid. Um, so, but I used to uh, I used to put ads on the Voir every month to get clients, and I would answer my phone engage langage bonjour uh, every time somebody called, and uh, I would get clients, you know, pretty regularly. And one one day I was walking through the park; it was a summer summer day, and I got a phone call, and I answered it, and I said engage langage bonjour. And uh, the guy started talking to me. He, he asked about the classes. He said, how do they work? He said, uh, do you travel? I live near Pinuf. Uh, do, you, do you go to other to clients' places? I said, yes. Uh, and then he said, do you ever barter services? And I said, well, I never have in the past, but what are you offering? And he said, uh, I do massage. And I was thinking, you know, when, when someone says the word massage to me, I have this visceral reaction. Where I'm just like, ah. Oh. Um, so I was like, oh, interesting, what kind of massage? Tell me about it. Tell me about it. So he starts talking to me about it, he starts telling me the kind of massage, and then he kind of slips in, uh, and then we have to be naked. Um, and I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I'm no innocent. I, I ask him, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I have to be naked, maybe, but why would he have to be naked? So I said, why do you have to be naked? And he starts giving me reasons, and then he kind of slips in, uh, because I like to put it in my mouth. Um, which is both shocking and doesn't answer the question. <laughs> of why he would need to be naked. Um, but that was enough for me and I said, okay, no thank you. And I, I hung up the phone um, and I was kind of shaken. And then he, uh, he called back, like he would call back regularly and I couldn't recognize it was him because he would, he would uh, hide his number, but I knew it was him because he, he would always ask, do you travel and I live near Pinuf? At which point I would just hang up. And he would call like every few weeks or every, every, uh, you know, every few months until I finally one day just said, I'm gonna call the police if you don't stop calling. And then he started yelling, he's like, ah, I just want English lessons, blah, blah, blah. And then I hung up on him. And, uh, and that was it. And I used to kind of think it was really weird that he was looking for like companionship in the, in the language ad section of the war. Um, maybe it's not, it's more likely that I'm just close-minded, I guess, or not opportunistic, I don't know. Um, but I think it was, I thought it was really weird, but now of course that was a while ago, it was like seven or eight years ago, and meeting people has really changed, right? It's, we meet people in a lot weirder ways now, so perhaps it wasn't that weird. And uh, well, whatever he's up to, I hope he found what he was looking for. Storyteller has actually told the story here in this room tonight already. 
Now here's the thing about this, is that when he went to go tell his story on the other side, he told a completely different story. That story also happened to be the shortest story ever at the shortest story in confabulation history. So please welcome back to the stage, Mr. Al LaFrance. All right, so I'm in LA a couple of years ago uh, with my girlfriend. We're over there. We're gonna go see Billy Talent because uh, it's the prime of like their fame here, but there's still nothing in the states. So there's basically nobody there. It costs pretty much nothing to go. It's really great. After the show, we're outside behind the venue. We're talking to the band. She's a huge fan. This is awesome. This girl walks over and she goes right up to the lead singer. While we're talking to him, she goes, "Hey, I manifested you today." <laughs> and and he says. Sorry, what, what was that? And she said, I manifested you. I was walking along and I thought, man, I would really love to see Billy Talent today. And then I looked up and you were playing at this venue. I manifested you. I'm the reason you're here. <laughs> and he looks at her and he goes, sure. And then he signs a thing and he hands it to her. And I am seething. I am so fucking mad because... That's just, a, like, I don't care if that's what you believe, that's a really shitty thing to say to a person. Like, you're putting so much pressure, you're like, hey, uh, you're alive because of me, basically, is what that person is saying. And I just get so mad, I'm just looking at her walking away, just sending all my negative fucking thoughts towards her. And she walks by a puddle, and a bus goes in the puddle, and just splashes her. And I turn to my girl girlfriend, and I say, hey, I just manifested that bus. <laughs> We will be having our next live event on May the 2nd. It's our five-year anniversary. Confabulation turns five, and we share stories of Montreal, the city we love and can't escape from. If you've got a story you want to share, send it to confabulation at nomoreradio.com or check out the form at confabulationmontreal.com or .ca. Confabulation, the podcast, is produced by Paula Flalo and hosted by Matt Goldberg. For more on Confabulation, you can check out confabulationmontreal.com or check us out on Facebook, the preferred social platform for everyone whose name is not Paula Flalo. Confabulation, the podcast, is distributed by No More Radio, available every week at nomoradio.com. Support for No More Radio comes from Montreal Improv. You can check them out at montrealimprov.com. 